I ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 3. Um, the joyful, joyful song that the choir sang. I was very happy when um, I woke up this morning and I got the order of worship from Nathan. I saw that we were going to be singing that. I was very happy to see the hymns that we were going to be singing. Um, when Casey read um, from Psalm uh, 42, um, I was... I was happy uh, that he did and glad. Um, if you weren't paying attention, I mean what I say when I say that I could say with the psalmist, Psalm 42, um, verse 5, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. And then the prayer to God, O my God, my soul is cast down within me. Help me to remember you. Um, the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime. And in the night, his song will be with me. There'll be comfort in the dark times of life. He will command loving kindness in the bright times of life. Again, verse 11, closing out Psalm 42. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? There's the repetition of it. And then the answer, Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. The help of my countenance and my God. The help of my countenance. God is the help of our, of our deepest depressions and our deepest dissatisfactions. I hope in God, for I will praise him. He is the help of my countenance. The countenance is your outward demeanor and your, your feeling. And, and your, he is the help of my countenance and my God. Um, so I was happy to see that. Um, well, let's just start by reading uh, verses 1 through 11 of Philippians chapter 3. Uh, Paul writes, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it's safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of mutilation, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks that he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcise the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And that's the passage this morning. It is a glorious passage. It is a big passage. It is a central passage. Not just in Philippians, in the Bible. 
This is a go-to passage. You can always go there. Now, when Paul says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord, we know from last week he does not mean there will not be sorrow or you won't be sad. If you go back to chapter 2, he says in verse 27 that he has known sorrow upon sorrow. He hopes not to know sorrow upon his current sorrow. In verse 28, he says, I, you know, I'm glad that he's returned to you so that I may be less sorrowful, which is not sorrowless, which means he's continuing to deal with sorrow and sadness and difficulty in his life. He's continuing to deal with these things, and yet his command is rejoice. In chapter 1, it is rejoice. In chapter 1, he is repetitively saying, I rejoice, I rejoice, I rejoice. So you should not think of joy and sorrow as opposites that cannot coexist, but instead, you should think of sorrow as a reality of living in a fallen world. And I would go as so far to say that if you are completely sorrowless in your life, you must not be a very aware or compassionate person because there are constant sorrows all around us. If perhaps we are not in the midst of them, others are, which is why we're told in the scripture to bear one another's burdens. Sorrows are a reality of a fallen world, but the world will not stay fallen. The world that we live in is in disrepair, and your life may feel like it's in disrepair. You may feel the weight of the disrepair of the world on your soul, and that's okay. That's okay. That's not ungodly. The Lord, too, is suffering. He is long-suffering. He is not slow to fulfill His promises as some count slowness, but he is long-suffering. The world is fallen. It won't stay fallen. Death will not exist forever. Sin will not exist forever. Rebellion will not exist forever. Ignorance of the God of all creation, the great high King of heaven, will not exist forever. When the Lord created, it was good, and it will be good again. Completely good. Good in a way that you and I can only imagine. It will be good again, but it is not right now. It is not right now. The Lord is long-suffering to set things right, desiring that none should perish. In other words, Setting things right would mean the judgment of his enemies. But he has sent his son to die to save his enemies. And so he is long-suffering in a sorrowful world, awaiting all those who will be saved to come to salvation and to be adopted into his family and to obtain the inheritance that Christ has won for them at the cross. Forgive me, I've been thinking on these things for a while and 
This call to rejoice in the Lord is not a call to put on happiness and ignore all the sorrows that are around you in life. It's not what it is. It is a call to take joy in Jesus despite all of the sadness that there is in life. And it is a tough call. It is a challenging call. It is not easy. And Psalm 42 speaks to that, doesn't it? The psalmist is right. When he says, my soul is disquieted. I am not happy. Things are not right. He's, but then he, he has the right conclusion. He doesn't say, I am not happy, so I will drink more. I am not happy, so I will buy more. I am not happy, so I will get more. I am not happy, so I will experience more. That's not his conclusion. What's the conclusion of the psalmist? I am not happy, I will go to God, who is the help of my countenance. And the core of that help is hope. I will hope in God. He is my help in my countenance and my God. He is not merely the sovereign God. He is the sovereign God who helps me to have joy in a sad world. When Paul says rejoice in the Lord, he means it. And he means it to the exclusion of all of the other things we could run to for joy. Now, it may seem like a weird transition between verse 1 and verse 2. In verse 1, he says, Rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same to you is not tedious. I know I've told you to rejoice many times. I'm going to continue to tell you that. It's not tedious for me to tell you that. But for you, it's safe, it's good, it's sound. And then he says, beware of dogs. And he goes on to talk about what's known as the circumcision. In other words, there were people, and, and those of you who have been in the New Testament know this, but there were Jewish people who accepted the idea that Christ was the Messiah, but when Gentile people would come to that recognition when non-Jewish people would recognize Jesus as the Messiah, they would go around telling those Gentile people, it's good that you have placed faith in Jesus as the Messiah, but if you are real and if you are right with God and if you want to be right before God, you also have to go through all the strict adherence of the Mosaic law. And one of the main turning points for that was you have to be circumcised like a Jewish person. And they would go around and they would tell churches that. Oh, you recognize the greatness of Jesus. That's good. You recognize the work of Jesus. That's good. You recognize he is the Messiah of Israel promised in the Old Testament. That's good. But if you will be right before God, you must be circumcised. That was their teaching. That was their preaching. And that seems like a strange transition from rejoice in the Lord, doesn't it? I mean, you can be honest. How do we go from rejoice in the Lord to be careful of the circumcision people? Those things do not logically go together, do they? They do. And here's the connection. The circumcision people were joy robbers. 
These Gentiles had come to Jesus and were taking joy in the Lord and what he had done for them. Their joy was real. And they were coming along saying, hold on. Before you get too happy about your situation, we have to tell you what also needs to be done. And now their joy was compromised. Wait a minute. Maybe what I feel towards Jesus, maybe what I believe is not enough, is not saving. I should be very concerned then about keeping every statute in the Mosaic law then. And so it's not, it's, it seems like a strange transition. It's not a strange transition. Now he calls them dogs, evil workers, the mutilation, because circumcision is a gruesome thing. There's a reason it's done to babies and not adults. And he says, beware of them, for we are the circumcision. And then he gives a couple of descriptions of the people. When he says we are the circumcision, he means we are the people of God. The people who were the circumcision people are going around saying, we're the true people of God. And if you want to become like us, you have to go through a surgery. But he's saying, no, no, no. We are the true circumcision. We are the true people of God. Who? And then here's what he says. Who worship God in the Spirit. Who have the Holy Spirit of God and, and worship Him empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. Who rejoice, there it is again, in Christ Jesus. And have no confidence in the flesh. What does that mean, confidence in the flesh? Well, I understand, I think, what it means to worship in the Holy Spirit. I hope you've done that this morning. I have. Some Sundays it's a struggle. You know, I'm a human being. I have problems and distractions in my life, just like you do. It's not always easy to worship in the Spirit. This, this morning I worshiped in the Spirit of God. I hope you have too. I, I understand some of what that means. I rejoice in Jesus Christ. I may not always do a great job of it, but I rejoice in Jesus Christ. What's the third one mean? I have no confidence in the flesh. Most of the religions of the world have some encounter where at the end of a human being's life, the accomplishments of their life, the things they did, will undergo some sort of evaluation. And what happens to them after they die will be largely, if not entirely, dependent on how that evaluation goes. For instance, Islam. There is no guarantee of a paradise afterlife in Islam. Oh, in Islam, there is a paradise afterlife, and there is a place of torment and judgment, but there's no guarantee. There's nothing, there's nothing outside of martyrdom for a cause that you can do to guarantee yourself a place in paradise. You are going to live the best life you can. And when you stand before Allah, He will look at your life, at all the works that you have done. And that God of Islam, little g God, because He's not real, will decide whether or not you go to paradise or not. You'll find out then. And this is how they convince people to martyr themselves, by the way. 
This is why millions of Islamic people across the world travel to their holy sites like Mecca because they think if I make this pilgrimage, perhaps Allah will allow me into paradise. That is confidence in the flesh. Confidence in the flesh means I think that I have confidence when I die and stand before the Lord because of what I have done in my life. Be it a surgery, like circumcision, be it a pilgrimage. That's not Christianity. Now Paul, this is what Paul says to the idea that, that, I, that any of you might look at, that we might look at our lives and give ourselves a righteous check mark. Here's what he says. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. And I like Paul for doing this. He's like, you know what? Let's have a competition. How about you take your life and your works and how you've lived and compare them to me? You say, well, I'm not sure that Paul's doing that. Oh, yes, he is. And matter of fact, verse 4 says, if anyone else thinks that he has confidence in the flesh, I more so. Me more. That's what he says. <laughs> in other words, he's willing to compete. You want to put your resume up against mine? Let's do it. Let's compare resumes. You know, it's like the old, uh, the old basketball argument. Who's the greatest basketball player? Let's look at the resumes. Let's go to the tape. Are we comparing championships? Or are we comparing scoring? Are we comparing defense? Or are we comparing MVPs? And, you know, it's, this is Paul standing up saying, if you want to say that you have confidence in how you've lived your life in terms of being righteous before God, being in good shape before God. Let's compare. I more so. And here it is, verse 5. Circumcised on the eighth day. In other words, you want to place me up against the requirements of the Mosaic Law, I get a check in the box. Of the stock of Israel. I'm not a proselyte, he says. I'm not someone who was born outside of the people of God and then joined. I was born of the people of the promise of God. I am born Israel. Okay? Another box is checked. I'm already out, by the way. I don't I mean, I don't know what day I was circumcised, but I'm not born of, the, of Israel, okay? So I'm out. Paul wins. Reggie loses. If you're still in the game, we could keep going. Of the tribe of Benjamin, of a kingly, faithful southern kingdom tribe, a tribe shown favor of by the Lord, a special tribe, not one of these northern tribes, not those guys, of the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, we're Judah people in Benjamin. We're not northern, we're not on the outskirts of Israel settlements. No, no. I'm from the right bloodline in Israel. A Hebrew of the Hebrews. See, there are Hebrews and then there are Hebrews. And he was a Hebrew. <laughs> Concerning the law, if you want to talk about our law, the Mosaic law, a Pharisee. I was an expert, a legal expert, a qualified legal expert, a Pharisee. 
and not just a qualified legal expert, an empowered qualified legal expert. In other words, I had authority to judge these things. People would come to me to find out whether or not they were in violation of the law, whether or not they were righteous, because I was an expert and I was qualified to be so. Concerning zeal, I wasn't just some guy up in an ivory tower. I wasn't the kind of Pharisee who sat by the riverbanks and just waited for people to come like some, like some uh, you know, uh, Eastern you know, guru. I didn't just monasticize myself like a monk in a temple and wait for people to come get knowledge from me. No, I had the knowledge. I had the right to rule. I was a Pharisee. But if you want to talk about how I practically lived, I was zealous. I put my life on the line. He says persecuting the church, which to him in those days was a cult, (laughs) a blasphemous thing. So he wasn't just some Pharisee who sat in his ivory tower and wrote books and recorded podcasts. No, no, he took up his own sword, so to speak, and went out and did the work that everyone was talking about that nobody else wanted to do. He was a zealous guy. He did the dirty work. He did the hard stuff. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Now, he doesn't mean sinless. That's not what Pharisees believed. He means blameless. In other words, every sin that had been committed had been legally dealt with in an appropriate way, and they were blameless at all times. If you mess up, you go, you offer the offering, Immediately, you you deal with it, and you're blameless. I stayed spotless. I watched myself carefully. So if anyone ought to be able to go to Yahweh, the God of the Bible, and say, I have lived my life in a way that gives me great confidence standing before you, it's Paul. And then the pivot to verse 7. But what things were gained to me, these things I have counted loss for Christ. Amen. What things that I counted profitable and gained to me, these I counted loss for Christ. And this is where we're going we're gonna to get back to a discussion about joy. Um, and the call to rejoice. Um, I was reading. Uh, I was reading this week. Um, you know, like I told you this morning on on space and on discovery and on theory. And I I knew that um, this would be funny to some of you, but um, uh, some of you will know the name uh, William Shatner, right? It's okay to smile and chuckle when I say the name William. It's not a name that's being spoken of commonly in churches across the country today, okay? It's a little odd to mention William Shatner. He's Captain Kirk. Star Trek. Yeah. That's Spock. That's Ashley gave me one of these signs. That's not him. But same same generation. That's right. Yeah. I bring him up because um, he went to space last year, last October. He went up in one of Jeff Bezos's rockets. Um, he went up into space, and I mean, it's kind of cool, right? A guy who's most famous for 
being on a show about spaceships flying into outer space, and 90 years old, goes up into space, sees what it's like, experiences that. Now, when I think about going up into space, I think about TVs and movies, because that's as closest as I've ever gotten to seeing what it's like in space. That's it, right? And I think of, you know, the Tom Hanks Apollo 13 movie. I also think of the Bruce Willis movie, but that's, I think, less accurate, scientifically speaking, but Armageddon, but uh, theologically, it's less accurate too, by the way, uh, but just let that go. But when I think of space, I think of stars and colorful planets and majesty and beauty. That's what I think of, right? Um, and I mean, I can be ex- excused for thinking of space that way. That's how it's been depicted to me. But he, he wrote about his time of going up into space, and he, he described it as a sad experience, like a funeral, which is not what you would expect. Here's what he wrote. I just want to read this, this short thing to you. We got out of our harnesses, and we began to float around. The other folks went straight into somersaults and enjoying all the effects of weightlessness. I wanted no part in that. I wanted, I needed to get to the window as quickly as possible to see what was out there. I looked down, and I could see the hole that our spaceship had punched in the thin blue-tinged layer of oxygen around the Earth. It was as if there was a wake trailing behind where we'd just been, and just as soon as I'd noticed it, it disappeared. I continued my self-guided tour, and I turned my head to face the other direction, to stare into space. And he says this, I love the mystery of the universe. I love all the questions that have come to us over thousands of years of exploration and hypothesis. Stars exploding years ago, their light traveling to us years later. Black holes absorbing energy. Satellites showing us entire galaxies and areas thought to be devoid of matter entirely. All of that has thrilled me for years. But when I looked in the opposite direction, into space, there was no mystery. No majestic all to behold. All I saw was death. It's his words. That's an interesting way to describe it. Uh, William Shatner is no Christian. I saw a cold, dark, black emptiness. It was unlike any blackness you can see or feel on earth. It was deep, enveloping, all-encompassing. I turned back toward the light of home. I could see the curvature of the earth, the beige of the deserts, the white of the clouds, and the blue of the sky. It was life. And when he looked out into everything that he'd anticipated for decades of his life, all he saw was emptiness and death. This is not just his experience. This is a common experience for people the first time they go to space. As a matter of fact, there were two other people Married people in their 70s who had made enough money in their life to be on one of these trips. And they said this, the blackness of space was very opaque. Opaque means you couldn't see through it. It wasn't wasn't like when things are dark outside and you can kind of make out objects. It was like being in the midst of a dense black fog. You could see nothing. You couldn't see through it. There was no reflection. There were no stars. Nothing. This is a a lady by the name of Sharon Hagels. Her and her husband went. For me, it was like you were on one side of the wall, which was light, and you wouldn't be able to pass through that darkness until you had died. 
It wasn't at all what they anticipated. She said, it, it left me with overwhelming sadness. When you think of a creator who made the world that we live in and who gave us the lives that we have, you are not living in anonymity or obscurity. You are known by the high king of heaven. You are known by God. You are observed. You are. If the center of the universe is the focal point of God's attention, then you might as well be at the center of it. He sees you. He knows you. He watches you. And out in all the vast planetary orbits beyond us, there is nothing compared to the glory of God revealed on this earth. There is nothing that compares to the glory of God in creation here. The heavens declare the glory of God. Observe from right here. And I thought how sad it was that a person would fantasize about the ambition of getting out there and getting beyond and all the billions of dollars that go into searching for extraterrestrial life beyond. There are people who will spend their entire careers searching out beyond, looking out beyond. Computer models and hypothesis Departments in every major university filled with people with public funds searching beyond, beyond, beyond. And God has called us here. Here. The instruction of God is to love here and to be here and to serve here where he will observe us here and reward us here and we will be with him here. And that's what I heard when I read what William Shatner wrote. I looked out and I saw nothing. Death, blackness, emptiness. And I turned back for a second time to the earth and I saw life. And how sad that a 90-year-old man had to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to take a short trip in a spaceship so that he could look up and look down and see exactly what the scriptures have told us. This is where the presence of God resides if it resides with us. This is where we bring him joy, pleasure, or anger and judgment. This matters. And Paul, in this text, is having a very real confession about this. My life used to be about other things. And now, as a Christian, I count all of those other things as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. That is it. It's not Bible knowledge, although that's important. We should be hungry for the word of God. If you've lost your appetite to learn of God, that's a problem. That's a scary problem. I don't need, I'm, I'm not concerned with being taught anymore. I'm not concerned with learning anymore. I'm not concerned with growing anymore in my knowledge of the word. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. But simply knowing the Bible is not the same as knowing Jesus. 
And he says, I count everything as rubbish, trash, refuse, that I may gain Jesus, that I can have him. Um, I, re I remember um, the first time and the subsequent times I have fairly vivid memories of, of going and meeting people with great wealth. Now, you have to understand my background. I, I grew up in a home without great wealth. The op whatever the opposite of great wealth is, that's where I grew up. Uh, we did not have great wealth. And so I grew up believing many of the lies that the world tells not trying to believe them, not devoting my life to them, but believing them. That great wealth meant happiness and security and peace. And I grew up, and again, I think we can be forgiven for this. That's the message. And I remember the first time in my early 20s when I encountered great wealth. I'm talking not somebody with a million bucks or two million bucks. I'm talking hundreds of millions of dollars. And I remember I went to his house and it was for work. And, and I stayed in his home and I watched how he lived. And it was so uncomfortable to me. It was nearly oppressive. It was a relief to leave. And I was treated very well, very kind, very respectful, which as a young kid in my 20s, I had no right to be treated respectful, but I was very kind, very gracious, not condescending, not, you know, nose above the clouds, nothing like that. None, none of that stereotypical stuff treated very well. I was so uncomfortable. And it wasn't until I was going home that I realized why I was so uncomfortable. It wasn't the environment that made me uncomfortable. They did everything they could to make the environment comfortable, easy. Didn't make fun of me, didn't tease me, didn't act like I was some poor person from out in nowhere, which I was. It was the fact that I had come face to face with what I had unconsciously believed life was about. And I was uncomfortable because it clearly was not superior to what I already knew. It was uncomfortable. And I remember, I don't know if it was that time or a subsequent time, because I've been in some of these, I've been on Fortune 50 campuses where wealthy people are and make decisions. I've been up in skyscrapers and corporate offices where people are there and I'm supposed to weigh in. I've had some of these experiences, not dozens of them, but some. And when I leave, it is so sad. I feel almost like a William Shatner staring into the blackness of space and then returning my eyes to home and saying, that's where life is. And I remember driving home from the airport after I'd come home late at night and I'd turn on whatever music is on my phone to play to keep me awake with the windows down to finish the drive home. And I remember one time when the third day song, Nothing Compares, came on. And I had struggled with this again because what I want to do is stand up in the middle of a board meeting and scream, this is all stupid. This is all pointless. But you can't do that. <laughs> it's 
such a conflicting feeling. But then driving back, and that song comes on, if you don't know the song, it's a song that repeats, nothing compares to the greatness of knowing you, Lord. Nothing compares to the greatness of knowing you, Lord. That's from this passage, by the way, Philippians 3. Nothing compares to the greatness of knowing you, Lord. And I just was singing, and I hadn't been, drawn into worship by myself, in a car, some ungodly hour of the morning, crying. And in the middle of that, I realized something. I realized that my mother and father were wiser than any executive I had ever met. And were more wealthy than any house I'd ever been in. Because they had known and had told me my whole life what I now had experienced. I have never met one of those people, kind as they may be, who were joyful. I've never met one. I've seen them happy. I've seen them sad. And I've seen them with a lot of other uncomfortable emotions, sometimes directed at me. But I have never known them as joyful as God's people as peaceful as God's people and as certain of their future as God's people. Nothing compares with knowing Jesus. And here's Paul, conclusion. Here's Paul. Let's just read from verse 8. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. It's not just that I count all things lost, but in Paul's circumstance, in his life, they had actually all been taken away from him. And count them as rubbish, as I've said goodbye to each one of these things. I did not do so with any sense of longing. (laughs) As I parted ways with my good reputation, as I parted ways with my happy, enriched existence as a Pharisee, as a ruler, as I parted ways with all these things, I parted ways with them with a backhanded dismissal of trash. I do not long for them. I do not want them. I do not need them. It caused me no pain to dismiss them. And count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. If this is what is required of me to know Jesus, no big deal. Nothing compares to knowing Jesus. And to be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, not no confidence in the flesh, but that which is through faith in Christ I have a righteousness that I did not earn and that I did not perform. I have a righteousness granted to me, legally granted to me, that Jesus purchased at the cross because Jesus was obedient even to the point of death. Whatever your level of goodness is, it doesn't compare to Jesus. Not only did he never sin, he obeyed to the point of death as a sinless man who didn't have to, who said to his disciples, do you not know that even now I could call down a legion of angels 
I have a righteousness, not that I've worked out through law, sin, sacrifice, forgiveness, and back to a good standing. Law, sin, sacrifice, forgiveness, and back to a good standing. That's not the kind of righteousness I have. I have a righteousness granted to me from Jesus. The righteousness which is from God by faith. That I may know him. Nothing compares to the greatness of knowing him. And the power of his resurrection. Knowing Jesus means eternal life. That I may know the fellowship of his sufferings. That's here on this earth. And be conformed to his death. That's here on this earth. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's eternal life. I don't know where you go to for your happiness. I don't know what it is in life to where when you fantasize or think, if I only had this, things would be better. If I only had this, then I would have peace. I wouldn't worry about things anymore. If I only had this, then I would be happy. I could just do whatever I, I wanted to do. Because my wants are small, if I had this, I could do what I wanted to do. If I only had this, if I only had that, if I could only do this, that would be amazing. That would be great. I don't know what you think of when you get in the shower alone and your brain is wandering. What would it be like to have this? Whose shoes would I like to stand in? That's all flesh. And it's all wrong. Nothing compares to the greatness of knowing Jesus. And I promise you, if you get the thing that you want, or have the thing that you lust or want, become the person you wish you could be, you will not be more joyful than any of God's people. It will not be what you think it will be. And so ultimately, it's a great mercy that God does not let us fulfill all of our fantasies. But instead speaks to the longings in our fleshly bodies with words of truth, Come unto me. Come unto me. You worried about your life? You worried about your family? Come to me. You guilty? You feel guilty about what you've done? You feel ashamed about what you've done? Come to me. Are you tired? Do you feel like you can't go on? You don't know how you're supposed to do this for another two years or six months or two days? Come, come to me. Do you want to be happy? Do you want to have joy? Come to me. It's a great mercy that he doesn't let us off the hook by giving us everything that we lust for because it's all just empty, black space. Let's pray together. Father, you have been so good to us and kind to us. You've granted us health and life. You've given us what we need in the world in terms of possession and sustenance. You've never abandoned us. You've never forsaken us. Father, help your people to be free. To be free of the grand illusions of the world that peace or happiness lie just beyond the next thing, whatever it is, the next accomplishment, the next treasure, 
Help us to be free of all that. It's a lie. It's a lie by which Satan leads around by the nose the people of this world. Help us to be concerned with knowing you. With gaining Christ. Save us from the miserable, sorry people we will be if we live in pursuit of our own passions. Save us from the unhappy, stress-filled people we will be if our hope is in the things in this world. Help us to say with Paul that we count all things as rubbish in order to gain Christ. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.